Hi all, welcome to Anime Echoes. We'll be going through the Gandalf family as a unit, Keith Gandalf, Kate Gandalf, Burger Gandalf, and Claire Stanfield. We'll be leaving luck for the next episode. We'll also be going through the Daily Days characters such as Nicholas, Aline, and the President. Let's explore the Gandalf family first. So the Gandors are a mafia group. They're a syndicate that ultimately works in the shadow areas of society, just like every other mafia group, and thus have a territory attributed to their name. Keith Gandalf's father started the organisation. What happened was quite suspicious in the mafia scene. Basically, Keith's father was an executive, and he was just handed the territory. Something quite unheard of, and the person who gave that territory just up and vanished. Despite that, Keith's father made sure to make good on the gift because he received it from his boss. He valued it dearly. As far as how much territory they cover, they can be considered to be growing, but overall small. They don't compare to the larger mafia. Despite their smaller stature, they do have strict rules they expect members within the family to abide by. Specifically, they have a distaste and disgust when it comes to the drug trade. Unfortunately for them, a lot of larger mafia are knee-deep into it, and because of that, they can't exactly start a war to take on the entire narcotics trade. That would be asking to getting decimated. Though their rule still stands within their area, and the residents of said area do trust the family more because of it. I guess the people seeing the Gandors take a stand against drugs, which when left unchecked, have decimated lives and neighbourhoods, helps to create a more appealing image. Though they are ultimately mafia, so the image needs to be more authoritative. They don't want to create an image of just being nice people, ultimately. They want to ooze a healthy amount of fear. Despite having some level of trust with its residents, there is still a lot of apprehension towards this family. There's an incident where Luck Gandor, a member of the family, gets attacked at a bookstore. After this, he states, It's a really dangerous world, isn't it? The apprehension from the people fundamentally lies in the fact that the existence of the Gandors themselves also brings violence to the citizens of the area as well. Key members of the Gandor family include Luck Gandor, Burger Gandor, Keith Gandor and Tick, their torturer. There are other members, but we'll stick with them for now. Within this novel, the Gandor family is revolved around a central conflict with the Runerata family. Luck gets his throat slashed and, despite people normally dying from an attack like that, Luck survives because he's immortal. All the blood just returns to the point of the incision and he comes out of it unscathed. The three Gandor brothers, Luck, Berger and Keith, are all immortal due to the events of the first novel. If someone is willing to attack a Gandor family member out of nowhere, then that's war. Luck getting attacked starts the dominoes of this conflict. While they do torture the people who attack them from the Runerata family, Eventually, Keith goes to the Daily Days, an information broker, to fully understand what kind of conflict is brewing. Who is the family's enemy? We come to learn that the boss of the Runerata family have a special connection with the Martillo family boss as well. Turns out they grew up in the same town. Overall, there are five syndicates fighting over Manhattan, and the Runerata family is one of them. The Runerata plan was to wedge into the gaps, so basically the areas the other four syndicates haven't taken over, to expand their business. The Gandals are part of that wedge. What makes the Runerata family boss so menacing is that he survived something called the Night of the Sicilian Vespers. A very mysterious standing event. Turns out, Lucky Luciano killed more than 30 mafia bosses who he deemed to be old-fashioned and created a commission. A new system for mafia familiar. A system that mafia members had to follow. Despite the pressure from such a commission and a monster like Luciano, Bartolo the Runerata family boss not only survived, but has managed to keep his syndicate together and also not be a part of the commission. He's that powerful.
this is the final boss the Gandos are up against, or at least that's what Keith is thinking at that point. But for now, there's a mini-boss named Gustavo, a member of the Runerata family that has put out hits on the Gandor family members, so he's their primary enemy right now. The Gandos are on the move now after hearing about Gustavo going to the Daily Days. It's time to fight. Now during this climactic scene, we come to find out that many of the men in Gustavo's squad were just planted. They weren't his men. They were moles, but not members of the Gandor family. Moles that they got as an agreement with Bartolo. Now this might sound confusing. Why would the Rinorata boss agree for moles to be planted within Gustavo's squad? Someone who's a member of his family. Well, it's simple. Bartolo chose coexistence with the Gandors, just like he chose coexistence with Lucky Luciano. See, Bartolo doesn't believe there is any middle ground between the following two choices. You either coexist or you have enemies. With Lucky Luciano, he decided to coexist. He wasn't going to be part of the commission, but they can still coexist. It's the same idea with the Gandors. Bartolo decided that the Gandors and them would coexist. Turns out, Keith Gandor had a conversation with Bartolo, and we don't know the specifics, and unfortunately for Gustavo, he chose the Gandors to be his enemies. The boss of a family and the executive of the family were seeing the Gandors differently, and he ended up backfiring on Gustavo. Now that's everything about the Gandor family in general, and I squeaked in some stuff about the Runerata family as well. I'm really liking how this is going. I think it's fun that the Runerata family have some sort of relationship with the Martillo boss. I'm hoping that comes up again in the future. I love when everything is connected to everything else, so I really hope it does come up in the future. It's also nice knowing about Keith's father and how he made the organisation. It makes us understand the roots of the Gandor family and also builds a mystery around like who actually gave him such a territory. Who's his boss? The Knight of the Sicilian Vespers also builds a fancy event that helps to build hype surrounding the Runerata boss, Bartolo. I also think that making Keith form a temporary truce with him off-screen was a great way to create mystery about what was said between the two men, and also a fun way to have the tables turned on Gustavo later down the novel. We'll now be moving on to the specific members of the Gandalf family, starting with Keith, his wife, Kate, Berger, and lastly Claire. Starting with Keith, we find out that the reason why he detests drugs is because it's a line he's drawn from himself and his family. It's a line he refuses to cross and thus despises them. Another fact about Keith is that he never talks. Even with his brothers, he's quite silent. He does little nods for the most part, though as the novel goes on, he does open his mouth every time it's like necessary. It's always done when it's important. He actually yells at Claire Stanfield at one point, and because Claire's laughing at a hitman, saying they're scum and that there's like no pride to be found, Keith gets angry at Claire for this. He says not to scoff at how other folks live. I think Keith finds some similarities to the hitman before him. Maybe he has a certain pride in his own work as well. Perhaps Keith doesn't want to consider everything his mafia family does as completely bad. Maybe he wants to hold on to the idea that being part of a mafia is complicated and that people in general are complicated. That we shouldn't laugh at how folks live. Claire thinks Keith and his family are different to these hitmen, but Keith sees them as the same. So it's not that Keith has a positive view on what it means to be part of the mafia. He sees familiarity between hitmen and being a mafia member. He's not saying that they're good, he's not trying to force a moralistic judgement here. He just has a sense of pride in the work that he puts out. And he doesn't want his work to be diminished. I guess he's more of a mafia member that we initially perceived. He does also proceed to kick the crap out of the hitmen saying work is still work, 
So he's not even empathizing with his enemy. All he's saying is that we shouldn't scoff at how people choose to live. As a general rule. It seems Keith has specific rules that he abides by and sometimes expects others to abide by. He doesn't deal with drugs. He doesn't talk smack about how people live. And he doesn't speak. To specific values that he upholds. That being said, he does still speak more in certain circumstances. As mentioned before, when he was discussing with Bartolo, the Rinorata family head boss, Bartolo mentions that he's quite eloquent. So he's not quiet because he's insecure about how he's going to come off. It seems like he's just very withholding when it comes to speaking. Only does it in times where he wants to. Apparently Keith also talks a lot when he's on the phone. And who is he on the phone with a lot? Well, it's his wife. It's Kate. We get the impression that Keith really values his wife despite his work constantly pushing him away from her. Apparently he missed New Year's Eve with her because of work. But if Kate's name is mentioned, then he'll look annoyed. You can tell he's quite protective of her. Also, once again, she's basically the only person who he actually chats with. To understand more about Keith and Kate's relationship, let's look into Kate and her past. Kate's a pianist. She would play amazing music for silent movies. Silent films are movies where there is no spoken dialogue, so Kate would play the background music in real time. So it wasn't a recording, she was playing it in sync with the visuals. Quite amazing if you think about it. But in the 1920s, when the talkies came out, silent films were eventually made obsolete. Kate would eventually lose her job. She describes how she felt during this conundrum. At the time, she scoffed at the idea of talkies, or the idea of having it like a voiceover on a film. From her perspective, there was no way that could ever replace real-time playing. The essence of having something played before you live. There was something magical about it, you know? She was sure the talkies would be a bust. I mean, it had to be, or she would be out of a job. So Kate sat down to hear a talkie for the first time, anxious about her place in the world. And when she heard the first famous recording, you ain't seen nothing yet. Tears began to form in her eyes and drip down her face. What she felt was complete and utter defeat. A feeling of being left behind entirely. And thus, Kate became unemployed. I thought this entire scene was incredibly striking. It was such a clear window into the psyche of someone who feels themselves become obsolete in the moment. The despair, the identity questioning, like who am I now? The questions about one's future going forward, what do I do now? How will I make a living? A complete shift from being necessary to one of being a fossil in an instant. I thought the author wrote this scene amazingly. It made me think about the inventors of our time. How they come up with a new idea and then it's quickly surpassed by another idea. How fast this feeling of being fossilized must be in our day and age. I guess it's within the mainstream thought to have to keep upgrading so it's going to be within the thought process of people in our current day. It's always within reason so maybe it's not as much of a shock now but back in the 1920s it must have been quite a shock to the system. The idea that you have to keep renewing yourself at the behest of technological advancement must have been a bit more foreign back then, I'm assuming. So no wonder it came as such a shock to her. I really loved this scene, and I felt like I was absorbed into the emotions of what it must have felt like to go through something like that. Now, after those roller coaster of emotions, she meets Keith, and lucky for her, Keith likes seeing her play in real time. In fact, he was basically a fan, someone who came to watch her. He told her that verbally, and just like the Keith we know, he went silent again. In a way, Keith being silent makes him kind of like a silent movie. I do wonder if Kate plays for him and tries to match with his emotions in real time, but Keith himself is the silent movie that she's adapting her music to. 
At the beginning of the novel, we hear that there is a melody being played for the dawn of the day in Hell's Kitchen. It's said that the melody represented the dawn. When we think about what comes prior to the dawn, it's the night, which tends to signify the end of something. When the sun is shining, it can represent the beginning of something else. I think we can assume that the person playing this melody is Kate, and it represents what she experienced when she lost a job. The night being the end of silent films, signifying the death of an era, and the sunshine being the beginning of something new, such as the talkies. It's said that when she plays, the colours change to monochrome. When something turns to monochrome, it's like going back in time. Her music, her real-time playing brings people to a different era, the era of monochrome, the past. An era that was lost to the night. A really fantastic way of weaving Kate's character at the beginning of the novel. I really love Kate as a character, and her and Kate's relationship is precious and heartwarming. Now that's all for Keith and Kate. Now moving on to Berger. There's really not much to say about Berger so far. We know he's married, and apparently he needs to make up with his wife, Kyla. What's cool about Berger is that he's a tank, and he's pretty crazy. Like, he's an immortal, but he shoots his own feet and his enemy's feet to give damage to the enemy, so he's willing to do damage to himself to hurt someone else. Like, when your enemy thinks, this guy's a psycho, you know you're not someone to mess with. Given the dynamic he has with Keith and Luck, we can tell that he's generally the muscle of the group, and we're told that his purpose is to invoke fear. We also hear that Keith's role is more about protection. So Keith is the one who contacts Bartolo and makes a deal with him. He ensures the protection of the Gandor family in its entirety. And lastly, we have Luck, who's known as the Cunning One. Now, we'll be going through Luck Gandor next week, so I'll be holding off on him for now. Lastly, let's go through Claire. For this novel, Claire's mostly in the background. He does help Edith out and threatens Henry half to death by putting him next to the rail tracks. During this scene, he has his eyes wide open and he's cheerful because the information he's asking Henry is most likely about information about how to find Chane. Now we actually hear about a hitman that could rival him, someone who could possibly rival a monster like Claire called Felix Walken. We see Felix and he's one of the hitmen that Gustavo hires to take care of the Gandor family. He kidnaps Roy and Eve and takes them to the Daily Days. I know there was something suspicious about Felix, Something didn't quite sit right within me and I had a feeling Claire would come up again and out of nowhere. I did think Claire was disguised as one of the hitmen, but I couldn't figure out who. Turns out, it's Felix. See, Claire needed another identity so he can marry Chane. So he basically asked Felix to sell him his identity. The identity swapping ultimately helps out the Gandors too because now one of their best and strongest friends are right in the middle of their fight with the Gustavo. Not only that, Gustavo thought having Felix on his side would help him a lot, but turns out, he was on the back foot. It was a fun reveal, and Claire by the end of it said that he was ultimately disappointed in the fighting that happened. He felt like he got a better workout on the flying pussyfoot. Personally, I thought that was a good thing. Claire was such a large part of the previous novel, so I thought it would be overkill to have him be too prominent in this one. Luckily, the author held back with Claire, and I think it really helps with the story but also, it didn't completely diminish his presence either. He was still a fun addition to the plot. Now, let's move on to the daily days. The information broker agency that Henry, the person who looks tired of living after having been startled by Claire, works for. The daily days is a newspaper office on the outside, but that's a front. It's an information brokerage. It's special because generally, they aren't located in one spot. It's quite risky to be an information brokerage that doesn't move around. 
The police will come after you easily and most mafia can destroy you if you're just in one spot. Generally, info brokers pass information like they pass drugs, very in secret and in the shadows. But despite the newspaper front, it was very in the open as far as brokerages go. What's interesting is that they have information about the incident from one year ago. This incident is what happened in Volume 1, where so many people ended up becoming immortals. We get the people listed for us, the Martillo executives, a waitress, the proprietress of the honey shop, and the Gandalf family are all immortals. The organisation is supposed to be a neutral party. People come to get information and they give information. Basically, they just sell information to people. But during this novel, the neutral party moniker gets kind of taken away. See, once the Daily Days becomes the location for Gustavo's attack, well now they are in danger. The president of this agency thinks to himself, ah well, I guess we can't be neutral anymore. And deep down, he relishes it. He likes his release from having to be objective and neutral this entire time. He talks about how all information crescendo to a point, and in his opinion, all the information people are acting upon ended up crescendoing back to the daily days. What's hilarious though, is that during all the commotion, all the fighting, the onslaught, the president was just behind his desk the entire time. As blood was spilling everywhere, as bullets created holes in the walls of the building, the president just sat there in his spot behind all his papers. I love this small reveal, it was really funny. I'm glad that the president has such a like a fun personality, that he's not just some like boring guy who's like really serious. I mean considering it's Bachner, like that should be expected. Everyone is quirky in some ways, but still, I really enjoyed that little funny gag. It's just funny imagining like the president with like a crap ton of paper like on his desk and he's hearing all these like gunshots and violence and just sitting there like hmm. Now let's go through the other workers at the daily days. We start off with Nicholas. He has a really cool introduction that showcases him as pretty badass. Two people from the Rinorata family start getting angry with him, but the second they do that, everyone in the Daily Days is packed with guns pointing at them. This gives a good indication of how the Daily Days has kept its location in one spot. It's not just that though, every other member is placed in a way where there is no opportunity to fight back. No spot to actually shoot. The desks act as barriers for the bullets and each member is perfectly placed like they're in the trenches. Nicholas ends this scene by stating, Thank you for your business. It's a great introduction to Nicholas and the daily days in general. Now, some things about Nicholas more specifically. He doesn't like sensitive information. When he overhears sensitive information, he doesn't like it. He becomes anxious. I think it's because he knows that sensitive information means trouble is brewing. Getting too close could spell carnage. From this we can see that Nicholas is quite risk averse. Nicholas also brought the daily days to the point where it is now. It was incremental in its rise to fame and where it could actually compete with the other syndicates, but despite that he could never temper his anxiety. He's always been anxious, which showcases more of his risk averseness. Aline is another member of the daily days. There's not much to say about Aline, but what we know about him is that he gets emotional very quickly. Upon hearing Yves Genouard's heartfelt story, he really wants to help her, but he proceeds to get her hopes up and then he has to kill them. He beats himself up over this. Apparently it's something he does often. Lastly, he's good friends with Samantha. Uh, the last member is Henry, but Henry is talked about in the overall thoughts and themes episode. So check that out. Overall, I really like the Daily Days group. They were all pretty interesting characters. I want to see Rachel interact with them more. I want to see the dynamic between the president and Rachel more specifically. I think my favourite of them would have to be the president, excluding Rachel of course. 
The president is just funny and mysterious. He also must know so much about things that are happening. Him being the president and all. Also the balls to just like sit there during all the fighting is just ridiculous. Those are my thoughts on the Gandalf family and the Daily Days group. Next week we'll be going through the characters Eve Genoard, Luck Gandalf and Gustavo. Thanks for listening.